The gardens at Highclere are actually to the southwest of the castle, so they're probably 100, 200 yards down a slight gradient towards the southwest, and they therefore lie in the lee and they're sheltered by some trees. In the centre is an old walled garden, which we call the Monk's Garden, and my records for that go back to the 13th century. Behind it lies a secret garden which is where I'm standing at the moment and which is where what I thought I'd share with you today. And then beyond that, we've got a wood which Geordie and I created and planted, an arboretum called the Wood of Goodwill. And you wander through that, you find a rose arbor and come out the other end and make your way up the terraces to Catherine's garden, named for Geordie, my husband's grandmother. And just behind that, I found a little walk which I want to make for my mother-in-law, Jeannie, so we can have a walk for Jeannie. So for me, the gardens are about people and it's a complete joy to be here and some evenings I'm very happy weeding here as well. When you watch Downton Abbey on TV and on film, you're possibly less aware of the gardens. They are actually used in Downton Abbey, but they often masquerade as someone else's garden. And around the castle are the green grassy lawns stretching in endless directions and endless expanses. That's because Highclere sits in the middle of an extraordinarily beautiful park, which was designed by Capability Brown in 1771. And on the wall inside, we've still got his original drawing. So it sits in a thousand acres of grass and parkland dotted with trees, cedar trees, oak trees. And in order to enhance the topography, Capability Brown and his patron, who became the first Earl of Carnarvon, sculpted the landscape to create better views, better lines, better shadings. And when you face south from the castle, to one side, towards the east, you'll find the lighter coloured trees planted, and we still do that today. And to the west, we find the more magnificent cedar trees, so it both enhances the light and the shadow. It's extraordinary the length to which our ancestors went to create a beautiful world for us to wonder and admire at today. So. I'm really grateful. They never saw the trees, which are 150 or 200 years old. When they were planted, they were 10, 15, 20 foot when they were planted out from the nurseries. So I think we owe them a huge debt of gratitude and I feel very lucky every single time I walk past the cedar trees and look up at the expanse of needled branches above my head. But here in the secret garden, it's a very different world of a curving herbaceous serpentine walk and I'm going to go along here and find Paul the Gardener with Stella and Freya. So I'm finding Paul in the secret garden. It's by the gate actually into the white border and it's bordered, the gate is bordered by two, I think they're Italian poplars, aren't they, Paul? You might, cedars, but it is beautiful. And Paul is our head gardener, and he's reminded me he's been here for eight years. It's gone by in a flash, actually. It really has, Paul, hasn't it? Uh, yes, it has indeed, yes. <laughs> I know, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And I, I know how much work you've put into actually improving the soil, which was in a pretty poor way when you arrived here, which I was very well aware of, and I'm hugely grateful, because without the, the texture of the soil, you can't grow the plants, can you? So. Uh, the, the, the soil is the, yeah, the most important aspect for, to the plant. 
obviously it needs sunlight and water as well but if its feet aren't in decent uh, decent quality nutrients mm. good drainage it's uh, it's not going to perform as well as you want it to although i think you and i always have a good whinge about the soil the the rubble that's in here the difficulty of working on on this particular area because i think the secret garden actually was built on what was the monks the monks owned highly for 800 years and this was they just tossed all their rubbish and rubble over the wall didn't they from their garden it was this border running along the actual south side of the the monks garden wall was clearly where they used to come through the gate turn left turn right tip walk away because as in the time I've been here I've been extending the borders as, as each year bit by bit getting them wider and wider and because uh, they were a bit lost at the back and been digging out probably tons of rubble and and removing it it is amazing. In fact, the secret garden which we're standing on in today, and there is a sign, so it's not really that secret saying the secret garden, which kind of always worries me, Paul, but otherwise we'd have so many visiting, where's the secret garden? So yeah, we spend all of our question. day. But it was designed by um, the sixth Earl of Carnarvon, Geordie's grandfather. It was the one thing he actually did in the gardens, and he asked Jim Russell, who's quite a famous garden designer, and he was actually at school with my father-in-law, and he worked a lot at Castle Howard to draw up plans for a secret garden. And it was actually just the serpentine walk up one way and down the other and out again. It didn't really have a circular walk. It was therefore quite a skinny, herbaceous border, but nevertheless one of much charm and interest. And that's what we've taken, isn't it? And then to create the walks and the views yeah. and vistas behind well, it. He, he clearly planted the, the beech hedge, which is so, so we're boundaried one side by the monk's garden wall. We're the south side of that, and then south side of the monk's of the secret garden, which, as you say, is a long, thin garden, really, uh, with the, the with the wiggly sort of serpentine path in the middle. And then the south side is this beech hedge, which is currently about ten foot tall and looking nice and full. So that must have been planted originally when the garden was designed. It was. I actually did find some of the original drawings of somewhere in the archive room. The problem is I then put them down again and forget where I found them. Yeah. For. I keep promising you all the garden archives and I still, after eight years, yeah. haven't managed to go. So I'm so sorry. But then within that, I know my grandfather-in-law, the sixth Earl, really liked bright oranges, bright colours. And he was always for, for the brighter things. And my parents-in-law softened it later on because my mother loved all the pastel colours. And my father-in-law also liked some of the bright colours. So there was always this balance going on about who wants what balance of colours as you walk along it. But actually, I mean, I think Georgie and I have done, made quite a few changes because this garden was designed for July and August. And when we began to open it to the public in the spring, we realised there was not a lot for people to look at. Yes. <laughs> Hence the tulips. The clumps of tulips, as, as we put them in there, it's probably 1,200 a year go in. Uh, and they go into gaps in the border, close to the front, which I keep as gaps. Over winter, they'll, they'll have the tulips in and ready for the spring flowering. And then they are going over now, although, you know, they, some of them still look good, but a lot of them have actually passed. Some of the earlier tulips have passed over. So they'll then get removed and we put an annual, use annual plants as a display for the front of the border in these patches. And then the cycle goes again. We remove the annuals uh, each time. We give it a good dig over and give it an extra mulching. Paul, I know from my own inadequate... Here. 
you two, come here. Right, now stop it. Don't bark. Please don't bark. It's too noisy. Paul, I know from my own inadequate weeding and gardening how much work there is here. It is a, it is a lot of work, isn't it? I think you're amazing with all you do because you've got two chaps with you at the moment and then occasional help from contract gardeners mowing or cutting the hedges and things. But it's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot of organisation. This is our busiest time, obviously. Everything is growing. And I'll be honest, I came in, well, I came in over the weekend and looked and I came in Monday morning and I thought, oh, crikey, <laughs> this is starting to grow some legs now and really get away. So I'm coming along as we speak at weeding this side of the secret garden. And I will continue. It's almost a bit like painting the fourth bridge by the time you got all the way round. I've got Apprentice who is currently at college doing his college work today and I've got another gardener mowing today. This is about to have its first weed all the way through before everything develops too, too much. And then of course, I've got everything growing in the greenhouses. And although we did have a slight frost this morning, we're forecast a frost for the beginning of next week. Hopefully I'll get this weeding finished and we can start planting out the at summer bedding. Which will then help suppress some of the weeds, sort of, or they just grow around it, I suppose, too. If you leave them in there, I'm they'll grow back. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm trying to be optimistic. But I, I think one of the joys, which I was writing about as well at this time, is the other side of the monk's garden from here is the beds of azaleas. And I was uh, writing a blog and I did some research behind it and I realised that, of course, I don't whether you knew, but there were shrubberies all up to the east lawns of the castle, right outside the library, was this amazing garden of shrubberies and winding paths throughout the 19th century, which many people used to come and wonder and admire, and they were planted en masse. Don't worry, we're not going to go back to another however many acres of garden. Although we have unfurled, if you like, revealed some of the extraordinary azaleas by Jackdaw's Castle, by the 18th century folly on the east lawns. and. That that has been such a joy, actually. I mean, I know you've also kindly helped there, and I started on winter afternoons if my husband was away somewhere or other, and it, it was a very good project, and incredibly satisfying, pulling out all the brambles. And I think in there we've got some of the original Ghent azaleas, which are actually quite rare. And at this time, there's such an amazing smell, isn't there? I mean, they I, are flowering beautifully at the minute, oranges and yellows. And yeah, as you say, they were, well, when, when I first arrived, they were pretty lost in brambles and bracken. And in the winter period, when things had died down, get in there by hand. And it has literally been involved, Lady Carnarvon as well, and various others getting in there and digging out the brambles. And then right now the bracken's coming back through, so we'll go through and we'll just break the tops off the bracken because that bruises them and that actually does more harm to the bracken than cutting it. They have come back, you know, they're not looking lost now, they've come back as, as part of the garden, and right now they are yeah, looking absolutely astonishing. One of the key azaleas in there is a azalea called um, lutium, it was called Pontica originally. Lutium is this extraordinary yellow, well almost wild one, my husband always says, but it's wild here, but it was very much part of one of the ones used in hybridization. But we've also planted a new small bed, haven't we, by, um, on this side of the East Lawns, just in one of the old depressions where there used to be a bed, because what's, I mean, they're an extraordinary thing to have here, isn't are, it, Paul? The, the uniqueness about having azaleas here is the fact that we are on chalky ground and azaleas are ericaceous, acid-loving plants. 
And I remember when I first came thinking, you know, reading about it before coming for my initial interview to come for the job and think, oh, hold on a minute, that's a bit odd. Why have they got azaleas growing here and so forth? And it transpired that the history is, I believe it was the second Earl excavated the, the land, the ground that was up there, imported soil, possibly from on the estate. We had previous discussions we think it may have come from when they were digging out one of the lakes on the northern northern side of the estate which was acidic soil because we know we've got acidic soil on the northern boundaries and brought it down obviously you dig a hole you fill the hole and that must have been I don't know how long ago 200 years ago I think in the sort of 1810 you know they're getting bigger but they seem to be although azaleas are very slow growing they they're getting fuller the ones we've planted have got a bit of a way to go but there are other depressions and I would love to again take back the turf and see what we find underneath it gives us the gardens another dimension doesn't it in May it's something else to share with visitors who hopefully will come back in future years and it's got a slight uniqueness of course because of its location to have azaleas I mean anyone can grow ericaceous plants in a pot with ericaceous compost but to grow an ericaceous border in a chalk is involves a slightly larger pot which is a hole a big hole on this, <laughs> <laughs> this occasion british gardeners <laughs> yeah. isn't it actually well, well, it obviously the second earl was uh, was very much along those lines wasn't he and so was his son the third earl so he very much carried on and it was a Mr. Gowan and the gardener, Mr. Carton, actually, who were famous for their um, azalea hybrids, which then they exported and shared to many other gardens. So from the azaleas, which are still flowering, and there's still more to come, actually, and then all the purple rhododendrons are yet to come as well, which is another mass. It's this clashing mass of brash colours, in a way, which which sort of hits you. And I was reading, they plant them deliberately, en masse all together so you'd, you'd have these massed clumps of colour they they weren't trying any they of the sort of because they're all in one spot as well they're in that particular northeast corner that the whole yeah. of that area in front of jackdaws yeah. was covered with these beds and winding paths yeah, yeah. so what we've got now i think is the result of the grassy war lawns following the first and second world war pool so yeah, i think well, yeah. went back a wee bit after the first world war a lot of gardeners unfortunately disappeared because they went to war and then the gardens probably had to take on new shape and new form because uh, unfortunately a lot of them didn't come back that's how garden I mean gardens do change don't they gardens constantly changing we've done changes in the time we've been here I mean the, the one of the big ones you've added in not long before I arrived was the wildflower meadow which at the moment is completely carpeted in cowslips an extraordinary display more so than we've had in any other year why is that i don't know we let them go to seed every year maybe the lack of frosts over the winter we've had a relatively mild but wet winter maybe that favored the germination of cowslips but there's certainly a lot of cowslips everywhere over the catherine's garden in the arboretum there's more so than i've ever seen as well previous years but particularly the wildflower meadow at the moment, it's yeah, a bit of a sea of yellow. And the, I know the wildflower meadow is something we must come back to in the summer because it does bring people such joy when they walk through it. They did film a little bit of Downton in there at one point. Um, they, were, they tended to finish filming here in 
early July and the, the wild yeah. flower meadow really goes becomes at its best later on in July and early August but the noise in there is also extraordinary it's really special now yeah, it's very in busy. The, in the summertime <laughs> it's a symphony of, uh, of crickets and grasshoppers and bugs and, and butterflies flying around it and you can actually just walk through with your eyes shut and hear as much as you can see but the cowslips are just the start of it that's that's the, always the first thing to come to flower they'll be followed by the vetches and, and scabious and oxide daisies we get relatively rare orchids growing in there now as well but yeah that's another one for the summertime but at the moment in the secret garden the cherry blossom is really past the birds seem to be enjoying themselves as much as they were with the cherry blossom as past it and then scattered giving some structure through the secret garden are quite a few viburnums and corners which seem to do very well on these soils don't they and then some buddleias and we try to choose unusual species of some of these everyday species that anyone can have in, have in their garden and then let them bulk out a bit in order to try to suppress some of the weeds. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some actually quite nice mature examples through the garden here because obviously it's been here, the garden's been here since the 60s. Some of the cherry trees have been replaced. You, we've got younger trees because they are sort of staggered all the way down through the garden. There's one we're particularly looking at that's unfortunately looking like it might have had its days, which I suspect might have been one of the original trees because that will be getting on for 50, 60 years old now, which for a cherry tree isn't too bad. Well, it's not the largest example it's clearly been pollarded at times as well to maintain its size but there's some younger cherry trees been planted in previous years which are starting to take form we've got the hibiscus nice big hibiscus going there that's clearly been in this garden for quite a long time and as you say we've got some large philadelphus which when they're in flower again this is more for the summertime but they're not flowering yet but they're all coming back to leaf lovely and i really love the serpentine form of the walk i'm always trying never quite being able to see where I'm going I think from my thing it's life's about a journey you know we used to write this essay about the but it's all about does the end justifies the means which I yeah. now think is completely incorrect and it's all about the journey and how you walk along the journey of life and I just think that's somehow the appeal of the gardens and you go along drawn by at the moment the tulips at the end there which will later on be I did what we'll put there, some Nicotiana or some Geranium, whatever else, and you turn around the corner and again you're led into the next stage. It's just magic and round the next corner at the end, a huge old juniper. And then you find yourself in the remains of the 18th century garden that was here in Robert Herbert's time sort of in the 1730s and 40s. So with, with, the, uh, yeah, with the beach avenue running up through the middle of it, which you have reinstated, at uh, probably about 12 years ago it might said. have been 12 or 15 years yeah. ago and actually we moved the beach from elsewhere on the estate we got a great big spade a machine and we left just a third of the branches and then chopped around the roots and then put them in huge holes and let them sit there and filled it with water and they've actually all survived and now say, they're starting well there is one copper beach, there is one copper beach. <laughs> i actually rather like the one copper beach in there i think in the summer it just adds a nice little touch i'm not sure you're quite so keen on it but i think it's part of life again and i yeah. like it more and more and also i was seeing yesterday how these young beech trees which were moved are now beginning yeah. to take the form of trees and grow up and also seek the sky and the light so it's magic 
I hope you love the garden as much as I do and you've done so okay. much to add to it and in front of us is a wall which is the south side of the monk's garden and it is an amazing wall because there's been a garden here for a thousand years, the other side of the wall. I would love to know the age of the wall because it is a beautiful brick and flint wall and as you say it surrounds what we call the monk's garden because it was once tended by the monks, I believe it was an orchard. How long ago were the monks here? <laughs> no, well, the, the, the records of the monks' garden, uh, they're in the Bishop's Rolls of Winchester, so they're in yeah. the 13th century. I've got records here from 1216. Yeah. So it is extraordinary, and they, they built a wall, and they write they did, and this is where they built it. And then this was the robber, and they had a frost gate. And there's, the list, there's a list of 61 pears and apple trees they planted inside it. Yeah, it's yeah. extraordinary. I suspect they also grew herbs in here, and it was reading and researching this is the reason why I then created the herb garden which is the healing herb garden really near the castle just round the corner from where we might have a marquee in the summer or just outside the tea rooms because I think the power of herbs has been with us for ages they give peace and also there's always a gradient here it's grassy paths so if people can are less able to walk further then there is a I hope a charming herb garden of some interest within a hundred yards. So Paul, normally we would have a lot of visitors wandering through here, finding it, I hope, peaceful, restorative and inspiring. But if they find you here, what, what do they mainly ask you? What's their favorite question? The most common question would be, how many gardeners do you have to keep all this together? They quite often ask en route down where to find a secret garden, of course, I used to give the line, I couldn't tell you it's a secret, but uh, <laughs> I just direct them now, it's a lot easier. <laughs> and there is a sign once I get round the corner. And then, I mean, there was, my predecessor, Don, was here for 42 years, years. And he was, he, was, he was a proper character, and he used to, he'd be working down here in the summertime, because I took over his position, obviously, uh, as head gardener. So I gave him a new position and I, I gave him a new title in the garden. I called him the garden's PR officer because he would be working down here and I, I'd come down to see how he's getting on and I wouldn't be able to see him. He was only a little guy. I'd see a sort of a group of, of ladies surrounding, looking at the same thing and I'd get up to it and there's Don in the middle giving him all his stories of the gardens because he worked for three earls. He worked for the sixth earl, the seventh earl and the current earl. And at times he'd be working the back of the borders and he'd sort of emerge from behind a shrub and look at people and just go, what year is it? I've been in there that long. I've no idea where I am. And just shock them into, uh, in, into conversation, really. And he always used to have so many <laughs> arguments with the sixth hell, Geordie's grandfather, who used to come down here and cut lots of really nice roses or whatever else for, to, um, for his latest lady he was hoping to admire to admire. And Don got so bored because he'd dead head, he'd take off all the best flowers that he always used to hide Lord Carnarvon's secateurs. So they, they would have this growing pile of secateurs and Geordie's grandfather would keep buying more and they'd keep nicking them and hiding them because they were so fed up. And they would tell him, they'd give him a piece of their minds actually when he yet again took all the best flowers out without any thought of it at all. They had so many funny times. Don, Don used to make me laugh so much. He was really precious and his 
Widow Gwyneth still lives in the same house that they've lived in forever and he um, didn't want to retire so that's why I know how kind you were Paul and he tells me that so uh, he did tell me that you know when he first arrived it was the sort of I think he arrived in the 70s so the secret garden was had been designed but I think a lot of the initial planting work went on in that time so he spent a lot of time in this in this garden when we then went round the corner of the secret garden and built a little archway and planted more hedges to lead everyone into the wood of goodwill and it came from a couple of borders to yeah. another 20 or 30 acres I remember him and Phil sitting down to say Lady Canal but it's just the same two gardeners and how many more acres have you added I said oh yes see what you mean <laughs> <laughs> well Paul thank you so much and I I'm going to leave you to the continual and relentless weeding. I will try and come down with a spade myself this weekend because um, it's incredibly relaxing. It's, it's almost completely absorbing, actually. But thank you for all you're doing. It, it is a complete joy. And Geordie and I love these gardens. They mean so much to us. And I think they give such pleasure to thousands of people every year now. So it's an amazing job that you do. And I know how slim your team is, too. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. So that was Paul, our head gardener, and I very much hope you enjoyed this podcast and I hope you'll join me next time. And in the meantime, stay safe and stay well. Thank you so much for listening. And just to say, please do subscribe to this podcast. Then you can be first on the list every time it comes out.